I don't know about quirky. Um, doesn't sound quite right. Convictional, maybe, is a, is a better word. You know, it's a baseball season, so I call it like I see it, you know. And someone asked me between the service, what's wrong with a man bun? I said, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> I, I mean... But these are not gospel matters, so to each, each to his own. Uh, you won't see me with a, a man bun, skinny jeans, wearing a scarf, or <laughs> apparently that's going to follow me. Um, they said just, just accept the fact that it will be in your office. Don't, don't try to fight it. Don't, it. It will be there. So, um, the Lord will have to, uh, have to help me with that. Well, please uh, get your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at the first seven verses. Before we look at the text, I'm going to read a story, share a story with you. It was just before 10.30 a.m., it was a... Sunday, January 6th, the year was 1850, and the place was London, England. Because of a snowstorm that day, a 15-year-old boy was, was prevented from traveling to church with his father, and he, he was also prevented from going to church into town. Instead, his path was diverted down a side street to a little primitive Methodist chapel. Inside that morning were only 12 to 15 people. And because of the snowstorm, the minister didn't show up. Instead, an unknown substitute lay preacher, perhaps a deacon, stepped into the pulpit and he read his text, Isaiah 45, 22, which says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Later, this 15-year-old boy would write in his autobiography. He says, at last, a thin, very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man obviously was not. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. He says, when he had gone on for a short time and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery and said, young man, you look very miserable. And you will always be miserable, miserable in life and in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he says, lifting up his hands and shouting, he said, young man, Look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but believe and live. And then he says, at once I saw the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought to look to Christ. He says, there and then the cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away. At that moment... I saw the sun. An obscure child, unknown, unheard of, I listened to the word of God. 
And that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. And he would later write, My gratitude most of all is due to God for the preached word. And that too addressed to me by a poor, uneducated man who had never received any training for the ministry and probably will never be heard of in this life. Well, who is this? This 15-year-old boy was none other than Charles H. Spurgeon, often considered the greatest English-speaking preacher of all time. At the age of 17, less than two years after his conversion, he became the pastor of a little Baptist chapel in Water Beach, England, that had 40 members. At the age of 19, he became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel, which could seat 1,200 people, but at the time he went there, there were one to 200 attendees. But after a month, the chapel was full. So they soon rented Exeter Hall that held 4,000 people. A year later, they outgrew that, and so they went to the music hall, which held 10,000 people. Within a few more years, they built a new facility called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And by the age of 27, he preached to 6,000 people twice on Sunday. At the time, he had the largest church in the world, and 25,000 copies of his sermon were printed every week. You see, the point is, all this began because a lay member of a local church was faithful to preach a simple message. Probably a message he didn't realize he was going to preach that morning. You see, God uses faithfulness. He uses simple, ordinary people to accomplish his purpose. Faithfulness is the key, regardless of how God has gifted us. And as we think about the, the three, next three, these, this week and the next two weeks, we think about the journey of faith. We think about messages that really are geared to train our hearts to be generous. I want to remind us that the way we support the local church is not primarily through our finances. You see, we serve God in at least three ways, with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. Yes, we need to financially support the church, but serving is also about faithfully using our gifts and our time. And so at the beginning of this year, our plan is to install several people as deacons here at North Wake. These are, these are people who are faithfully serving the church already. People, we think, meet the qualifications given in the Bible. And so in this message, I want to discuss the office of deacons, both what they do and what kind of person should serve in this capacity. So our text is Acts chapter 6. And uh, before I read it, I, I want to mention something that the text doesn't actually use the term deacon. There are seven chosen to serve in a particular role, but we see this as a prototype, just as there were apostles who were dedicated to the word of God and to prayer, and a situation came, up, came a, a problem, a crisis happened, and so they appointed these seven to help with this situation, that that's a model for us today as 
Elders and pastors are given the task of the word of God in prayer. And so when issues arise, we need others to come and to faithfully serve the church. But notice how this passage begins and ends. Notice in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, God was blessing the church, disciples, people were being converted and brought into the church. And then verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It begins with growth, it ends with growth, but in the middle there is a crisis. And if the church had not responded appropriately, if if people had not stepped up to help and to serve the church, the story would be written much differently. And so let's look at this passage in its fullness. Verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, now here's the crisis, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word, thanking you that it is sufficient for life and godliness, thanking you, Lord, that it's, it's all that we need and that you speak through your word. Lord, we pray that you would do that, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us, that you would rebuke us. Lord, you know what we need, and we thank you, Lord, but we pray that you would increase our faith to trust, to believe, and to rely on you for all things. We thank you for those who faithfully serve this body. We ask your blessing upon them and upon our time together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Two simple points this morning related specifically to the office of deacon. Number one is this. Deacons are needed in the church. Deacons are needed in the church. These faithful servants are needed. They're needed, first of all, to help the congregation function properly to help the congregation you see there was a problem in the church in Jerusalem it was caused at least in part by the church growing in verse 1 it says in these days when the disciples were increasing in number when you have more people you potentially have more needs and more problems and this problem involved the neglect of some of the church members Again, in verse 1, it says, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's going on here? Well, you have two different groups that speak different languages. They're all Jewish, but some 
of the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected, whereas the Hebrews or the Aramaic-speaking widows were not being neglected. Now, th- this might seem like a minor issue. You know, some, some, uh, some, w- some widows are being neglected. But wait a minute. What does James say about taking care of orphans and widows? That that's a sign of true religion. So this is not a small problem. But notice it was not an option for the apostles just to let it go. They say it's not right for us to leave our calling of the word of God in prayer. But you get the sense that they would have done that if no one else would have stepped in. This problem needed to be dealt with. It, it could have led to the first church split based on what language somebody spoke. Which inevitably would have affected the unity of the church and the progress of the gospel. It might look like a small problem, but it could have turned into something that was quite large. September 2nd, 1666, was the first day of the Great Fire of London. It was a devastating fire that lasted four days. It consumed 13,200 homes, 87 churches, St. Paul's Cathedral, most of the government buildings. It's said that of London's 80,000 inhabitants, 70,000 lost their homes. The fire, it began in the house of King Charles II's baker, who lived, interestingly, on Pudding Street. You can't make this up. The baker lived on Pudding Street near London Bridge. And as the story goes, on the evening of September 1st, Thomas Farinor, the king's baker, failed to properly extinguish his oven. He went to bed and some, somewhere around midnight, sparks from the smoldering, smoldering embers ignited firewood lying beside the oven. Before long, his house was in flames. He escaped with his family and a, a servant through an upstairs window, but one of the bakery assistants died. The fire then spread and raged throughout the whole city for four days. You see, something that began as a small fire, because it was not properly dealt with, became a devastating inferno that caused an incredible amount of damage. You see, in the same way, there are problems that might arise in the church. And if they're not properly addressed, they can cause a lot of damage, severe consequences. And so there was a problem, but the apostles had a solution to this problem. They said in verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so seven were chosen to provide leadership over this area, to put out the fire, to talk to people who were hurt to make sure that funds were designated to this group of widows. And they dealt with this problem. We know that because in verse 7 it tells us that the, the church continued to grow and the word of God continued to increase. And so deacons are needed today in the, in the church to help the congregation function properly. 
Sometimes there are problems that are caused by a growing church. Where is everyone going to sit? Where is everyone going to park? Issues might arise. Things need to be purchased. Things break down. Uh, sometimes organizing things takes a lot of work. Uh, think about the church in the park a few weeks ago. Think about runner's camp. And so deacons are the type of people who serve in these sort of situations, who serve faithfully. And so they're needed to help the congregation function properly. But also they're needed to help the elders or the pastors function properly. You see, in, in our text we have apostles who are dedicated to the word of God and prayer. And like the apostles, elders now are given that responsibility in the church. So look at verse 2. The apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. In the same way, that teaching function is given to the local church, is given to the elders, the pastors, who are called to a ministry of the word of God and prayer. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.2, he's giving qualifications, and one of the qualifications is that an elder must be able to teach. Well, why? Because that's part of his duty, is a teaching responsibility, ministry of the word. 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says that the elders who rule well are, should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, the ministry of the word. And so what do deacons do? They do what is necessary, whatever might be necessary, to free up the elders so they're not burdened and called away from their primary calling of the word of God in prayer. You see, elders are the primary leaders of the church, shepherding, teaching, equipping. But sometimes that work by itself can be overwhelming and difficult and time-consuming. And when other issues arise, for them to focus their energies Elsewhere is not ideal. And so deacons are needed to allow the pastors, allow the elders to focus on their primary calling of shepherding and preaching. Now, it, it's not that serving was beneath them or below them. No. Jesus had already taught, didn't he, what it means to be a servant he demonstrated this in his life, and he, and he said to them, he said, if you want to be a leader in, in my kingdom, he says, you know that the, this is in Matthew 20, you know that the Gentiles, the, 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 the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. They lord it over them. But he says, no, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And Jesus demonstrated that by washing the disciples' feet, by humbling himself and getting into that servant role and being willing to wash his disciples' feet. Pastors, elders should be willing to do whatever's needed in the church. Nothing is, is, is outside of the, the realm of possibilities. If the, if the toilets need to be cleaned, the elders should be willing to clean the toilets. And all God's people said? <laughs> so I'm sure that, that Larry and, and, and Jake and Daniel willingly clean the toilets. 
I, I, would, I, would, I would imagine that, that, that Larry has cleaned the toilets here at North Wake at some point during his 20-something years. As a matter of fact, I would say that pastors who think that serving like that is, is, is not really for them, they're, they're, they're too high, that's below their dignity, that that sort of person, that sort of mentality, that that person is not qualified to be a leader. You see, the issue is what we're called to do. In verse 2, they say, the apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching. It is not right. Actually, the, the Greek word there says, it's the word for pleasing. So literally, it means it is not pleasing that we do this. It's not pleasing to God that we do this. God has called us to this task of preaching the word of God. And so we need to focus on this task. You see, elders, pastors are called to take care of the spiritual needs of the church, to shepherd and pray and equip. And deacons are called to take care of issues that might arise, that might distract the pastors from their primary call. And by the way, the deacons do not serve the elders. They serve the congregation. They may assist the elders, certainly they're doing that, but they serve the congregation. Well, how do deacons serve the church? Again, the answer, wherever there is a need. The Bible doesn't give us specific duties. It gives us qualifications that we'll look at, but it doesn't give us specific duties. And so, in Acts, we see that they were, these seven were appointed because the need was Certain widows are being neglected. But each church is free to say, okay, here is our need, and here is a person who can help meet that need. And so we will appoint them as a deacon. So some of the areas may be related to facilities. Uh, could be related to setup and cleanup and related to the sound system, to purchasing things for the church. Related to greeters or ushers, preparing bulletins, sitting visitors, preparing the communion elements. It could be related to finances, collecting the offering, record keeping, uh, budget preparation, and certainly to benevolence or acts of mercy, helping the poor. Think about our, our feed ministry. Whatever is needed to free up the pastors and the elders so that they can focus on their calling of the word of God and prayer. That is the function of deacons. Deacons are needed in the church for that reason. But secondly, not just deacons are needed in the church. Qualified deacons are needed in the church. Qualified deacons. Now, going back to Acts 6, notice how the congregation is involved in this in the selection or affirmation process. You see this very clear in the text in verse 2. <clears throat> it says, the 12, 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. So they called together the congregation, the whole congregation. And they said to them, verse 3, you pick out from among you. They were involved. The congregation was involved. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering and they, that is the congregation, whole gathering, chose the seven. Verse 6, these, they, that is the congregation, set before the apostles. These seven. 
Interestingly, this is true even though the apostles were there. You might think that, hey, Peter's, you know, or, or one of the other apostles can make the decision. But yet, they say to the congregation, you're involved in this. You participate in this. It's important that you do this. Choose, pick from among yourselves. And we see this sort of congregational involvement elsewhere. Remember when we went through the book of Acts, if you were here, and Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary journey? And they left from the church in Antioch. And that church prayed for, commissioned, and sent out the apostle Paul and Barnabas. The local church was involved with that. Or in Acts 15, when there's the, this, this debate about whether Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. And they gathered in Jerusalem, and it says that the apostles were there and the elders were there, but it also mentions the congregation, the church, was participating in this as well. And when Paul wrote letters, you notice that he doesn't write the letters to the leaders of the church. He writes to the church as a whole. He writes to the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, or the churches of Galatia. And so congregational involvement is important. It's, in, it's important, first of all, because sometimes the congregation can know the character of somebody better than some of the leaders. Maybe you, you're neighbors with this person, or you know this person, you've known this person longer. You see, it's, it's oftentimes, it could be easy to hide things from the, from the leaders. Uh, if, uh, if you invited Pastor Larry over to your house, do you think you would clean your house first? I would. You know, when we have small group over, you know what we do? We sweep, we vacuum, we take out the trash. Anybody out there, is that right? Uh, you put away the laundry. Why? You don't want people to know that you're slobs, right? Uh, you you, you want to be presentable. Uh, and so, well, okay, you're not slob, but you want, you, want to, you want to make it extra nice. You want to clean up. You know, when uh, last week, uh, Sunday, our small group was meeting, and I was like, you know what, it's kind of, uh, there's a lot of leaves had fallen on the driveway, and so I, was, I put on my backpack blower, and I, had my, I still had my Sunday clothes on, and I'm out there blowing, and then all of a sudden, small group people start coming. I'm like, oops, I didn't time that right. I'm out there blowing off the driveway, and they're, they're pulling in. I wanted it to look pre presentable to them. And sometimes so people, we, we can, we can we present ourselves to the leaders in a way that maybe isn't authentic. And so we need your help in this process. Have we chosen the, are the right people being presented to you? We would love your affirmation when that time comes and we say, look, these are, the, these are the people. What do you think? We need your input. We value that. But congregational involvement is also important because deacons are our leaders. I mean, you think about the seven that were appointed, they had some sort of leadership, right? They had, a, they had to talk to people, they had to calm the situation down, some people were disgruntled and so they had to pray with them and they had to make sure that funds were being designated to these Greek-speaking widows. They had leadership and so deacons are our servant leaders in the church, and if we're going to present them and they're going to be leaders, then the congregation needs to be willing to follow those people. And so the congregation is involved, but notice they chose only qualified candidates. 
qualified candidates. In verse 3, they say what? Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, that is good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And then they, they talk about Stephen specifically, that he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives a list of qualifications for deacons. And this is, this is the list that we're going to evaluate, that we evaluate deacon candidates with. Uh, we don't make our own list. We look to scripture. And so Paul tells us the type of people that should serve as deacons. After he first gives the qualifications for elders, verses 1 to 7, in verse 8 he says, Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not double-tongued, right? Not double-tongued. That is, you say something to one person, but you say something different to somebody else. Or perhaps it could mean you say one thing, but you mean something else. Deacons are not double-tongued. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? He says, they must hold the mystery of the faith. He's talking about the truths of the gospel. Do they, do they know these truths? They hold it. They, they affirm it. So first of all, they need to know what the Bible teaches. They need to know sound doctrine. But it's more than knowledge. Notice he says, hold it with a clear conscience. That is, they must live according to what they know, otherwise their conscience will not be clear. Verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Notice that these qualifications are character traits. These are moral issues. Notice that it's not, notice what's not here. It doesn't say that this person must be a successful businessman or must be a Christian for 10 or 20 years or must be a generous donor to the church. Although generosity is always a positive. Character is what's emphasized. Character is more important than gifts. A lot of people might be gifted to do a lot of things, but if their character doesn't correspond to these qualifications, they're not qualified. And if you compare these qualifications to the qualifications above in verses 1 to 7, those given to the elders, you'll see that they're almost the same. The main difference between elders and deacons is not character, but it's calling. Elders are called to teach the word of God. It's that ministry of the word, whereas deacons are called more in a service to the church. Well, how should the candidates be chosen? Well, this is not a popularity contest run like an American democratic election, okay? Uh, it's not that you, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm going to run for deacon. And then I'm going to make posters and pins, you know, vote for me. Uh, th- that's not how it works. Uh, we, don't, we don't decide to run and then garner votes. Instead, the, the leadership 
and the congregation are involved in this process. So, so those who are selected, first of all, need to, need to make the, meet the qualifications. They, they need to be tested, right? Remember it said in 1 Timothy 3.10, deacons must first be tested. Well, t- what does it mean to be tested? Well, it means there'll be some, some meeting, some interview that takes place uh, where they're testimony is given how did they come to christ their beliefs are tested do you believe in sound doctrine do you affirm the statement of faith of the church what about their personal and family life you know the text actually said that we read that they need to be blameless now we have to be careful with that blameless almost sounds like perfection but blameless is sometimes translated in other versions as above reproach or beyond reproach And what it means is there's no glaring character flaw in this person. It's sort of a catch-all. So if if something is in this list or this person uh, has some other sin that's not given, you say, well, this person's not above reproach. But it has to do with not perfection but direction. Is their life heading in the right direction and are there any, um, there should not be any major character flaws. And so this means, this time of testing means that, that we will ask you to give your input in those candidates that are brought forward. And another thing we could say is that those candidates who are selected are those who are already serving. You know, it, it, we're, not, we're, we're not selecting people who, uh, who we think might hopefully be good servants. We're selecting people who are already serving. A friend of mine used to say regarding this, he says, if it quacks, wobbles, and has webbed feet, it's a duck. You know, if you see somebody serving faithfully year after year after year, joyfully with the gift of help, loves helping people, you say, well, maybe God has given us another deacon. Well, how many deacons should the church select? Well, basically, the the text doesn't say, uh, although in Acts they chose seven for some reason, but Paul, when he gives the qualifications, he doesn't tell us. And so basically we, we think it's as many as are needed. What are the needs of the church and how many people are qualified to serve in this capacity? So as many as are needed and meet the qualifications. Well, how long should they serve for? Again, the Bible is silent related to the term of a deacon. In some contexts, in some churches, they might serve a specific term, one year, two years, or three years, or, or could be more. In other churches, it's an indefinite term. Uh, we have decided that our deacons will serve a two-year term that is renewable in the sense that if they're still in need and if they are still able and willing to serve, they can continue to serve. And then finally, we see that deacons are publicly appointed. And so, the beginning of next year, uh, perhaps the, the first Sunday, we will publicly appoint to lay hands and pray and appoint these uh, servants to their office. So, to conclude, deacons are faithful servants who are needed in the church. They are needed to serve the congregation to be proactive in serving and also to put out fires that might arise. And they're needed to serve and to assist 
the elders because pastoring and shepherding is a, a difficult task that is their primary calling. And so the deacons come beside and help and free them up to do that task. The Bible says those who serve as deacons are blessed. 1 Timothy 3.13, Paul writes, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. One author put it this way, he says, Far from being a menial task, as some might surmise, providing daily service to the church has its rewards. Deacons are building a good reputation with the community and they are developing an even deeper confidence in their faith. But those who serve are not only blessed, but they become a blessing to the congregation. Remember going back to Acts 6 verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. The potentially disastrous fire was put out and the church continued to to flourish. I mean, think about that, that the deacons had, or these seven, right, had an impact on the spread of the gospel. And it says that they were devoted to the word of God in prayer. It wasn't just to believers, it was also to unbelievers. And the, these seven allowed the church to spread and to prosper. And so this is an important task. And so, in the end, regardless of our gifts and our calling, God calls us to be faithful, to be faithful to, ser- to serve him when we can, even when it might seem insignificant. You see, that layman who faithfully preached to a dozen people that morning had no idea that a 15-year-old boy would become saved and would become the greatest English-speaking preacher. May the Lord help us to be faithful to serve him with our time, with our talents, and also with our treasures. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for those who have served so faithfully here at North Wake for so long. Lord, we ask your blessing upon them. We pray, Lord, for all of us that we would, in light of the the truths of the gospel, that we would desire to serve you with our whole heart, faithfully. And yet, Lord, we're reminded that in the end, we fail, we fall, and our service to you is often stained with false motives. And it reminds us of the one who faithfully served to the end. That Jesus entered the garden. He prayed, not my will be done, but yours. That he was arrested. That he was beaten, crucified, and buried. But praise God, he was raised on the third day and is seated at your right hand. Thank you for his faithful service on our part. That the truths of the gospel help that, Lord, to fuel our service for you. That we would have hearts of thankfulness. That we would humble ourselves before you. That we would willingly and gladly serve others. That the gospel 
would increase. And that the number of the disciples here at North Wake, in Wake Forest, in Wake County, North Carolina and beyond would increase for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.